Welcome to EIS Navigator. I'm your host, Brian Moretta. It's the end of 2020 and it's been a heck of a year. The EIS Navigator team has assembled a stellar panel to look back on what happened and also to look forward to, hopefully, a better 2021. If you're enjoying the podcast, don't forget you can subscribe on all good podcast services, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you have any suggestions for future topics, then you can email us at inquiries at harmonandco.com. Without any further ado, enjoy this episode. So, on today's podcast, we have an all-star panel to look back on 2020 and to look forward to what may or may not happen in 2021. So, I'd like to welcome back Mark Brownridge, who's Director General of the EIS Association, Keelan Doyle, who's appearing for the first time, who is Director at Simpson Capital, and Avid Karelsi, who is Head of Tax Advantage Investments at Tilney Smith & Williamson. Welcome, everybody. Hi, Brian. Hi, Brian. So, I'll give everyone a chance to sort of introduce themselves a little bit more. So, Mark, this is your second appearance in the podcast. You want to tell us a bit more about yourselves? Yeah, sure. Probably said exactly the same thing the first time around. But uh, so, yeah, I'm Director General of the Enterprise Investment Scheme Association. We're the trade body for the EIS and SEIS industry. So what do we do? We do two things. One, we work with government, Treasury, HMRC, FCA, uh, all the fun people, really, to look at the legislation about how the schemes work and, and try to make them bigger, better and more effectively, really. And the other part of what we do is stuff like this. So it's uh, letting people know how the schemes work, so whether that's investors or companies or entrepreneurs or any professional services, you know, the tax advisors, lawyers, the accountants, uh, solicitors. Uh, we try and bring all those different elements together and, and learn a bit more about what we do in this industry. Excellent. Keelan. Sure. Thanks, Brian. I'm Keelan Doyle. I'm co-founder and investment manager at Simban Capital. Simban Capital is a technology investor. We operate in the EIS and SEIS markets. We have been around since 2013. And we, uh, we're technology specialists, and in particular, we tend to focus on B2B SaaS software companies amongst a number of uh, subsectors within the technology sector. Excellent. And last but no ways least, Eivod, do you want to tell us a bit more about yourselves? Thanks, Brian. I'm Eivod Karelse. I work with the Tilney Smith & Williamson Group, responsible for all research into the VCT, EIS, SCIS, and IHT products. Within the IHT products specifically, uh, we focus on the unquoted IHT uh, investments. Outside of that, I work with compliance team, with advice quality team, as well as with various other teams in the, in the business. And I spend a lot of time talking with financial planners, pirate planners around the client needs, objectives, and how we can create bespoke portfolios for their clients. Excellent. So the observant amongst our listeners will have noticed that we have a balanced perspective on the market in that we have someone from the advisory side, someone who is a fund manager, and someone who is kind of, if you like, the official side of things. So we're hoping to get all different perspectives from the market. So I thought it might be a good idea to start by having a quick review of what happened in 2020. And maybe if we start, what happened with the fundraising side? So maybe we could ask Ava that. Uh, how do you see fundraising having gone this year? Yeah, so it's really interesting. It's a lot of our advisors had done, I guess, their homework on time before the, the 5th of April happened. Uh, and so for us, business year to date, basically on, on April, hadn't been affected. But we can definitely see that the whole of March, there was no focus on EIS. Yeah. And then later on, because basically in March, we started focusing on IHT solutions. 
as part of estate planning, where we started to talk to clients about their objectives, their needs, their concerns really around COVID. And that carried on into the new year, the new tax year. So the focus is really on estate planning as opposed to on other planning around income tax or capital gains tax. That we've seen now an increase again in EIS. And that's partly to do with most of our clients having dealt with their estate planning needs now. Uh, and now we can focus again on on other needs that our clients have. Mm. Yeah. So, so Keelan, does that kind of tally with your experience of what happened during the year? Yeah, I don't think anybody had had a great year. I mean, we started off the year <laughs> having a great year, and then of course, I suppose it was the end of February whenever things started acting up in Italy. You saw a bit of a wobble, and of course. March was a bit of a bit of a disaster. We had our audit, FCA regularly. We do our audit every April, and we we were really bearish on the prospects. And I'm glad to say that. And so we assumed that there was not going to be no fundraising until Q4. And although we were correct in May, by June things started picking up. And I wouldn't say it's been a great year since June, but it's been okay. And I know a lot of people I've spoken to have been saying things like it's down two thirds year on year in terms of fundraising, but it's been a tough year. I don't think there's any any way around that. But I think it's getting better. And I think, and maybe that's just function of being a glass of half full person, but I think with some of the recent developments on the vaccine front, um, certainly we're counting on Q1 being um, an improvement. Maybe not back to where things were a year and a half ago, but but, but an improvement. So yeah, a tough year, but I'm glad to say we're getting through it in one piece. Yes, I think we all are. So Mark, you obviously speak to a lot of people in the market. How do you think your the, the sort of pan-market perspective is? Yeah, it's interesting listening to the guys talk about it. Because obviously, the cult phase, you know, Avard in terms of uh, talking to investors and what they're doing and, and appealing on the fundraising side of, from a fund. So yeah, I guess I probably echo what they said already. I thought um, Avard was quite bullish in some ways. Uh, I think talking to fund managers and, and people who are raising outside of funds as well, you know, direct investors, it's been a bit of a, a bit of a shit show, for kind of a better phrase, if you don't mind the spare words. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I think COVID hit at kind of February, March, April time, and that's normally the biggest fundraising time of the year for EIS mm-hmm. and, uh, and SDIS. You know, BCT tends to raise slightly earlier than EIS. So I think they probably just about got their money in before the worst of it hit, but they weren't too affected. But certainly in EIS land and SDIS land, uh, it was a difficult time. So a bit of a perfect storm. So the fund manager is telling us 60, 70, 80% down. we just done some research which showed that year on year, the EIS was about down about 29, 30%. So yeah, that has a massive knock-on effect for managers uh, who are obviously trying to put money into companies and uh, trying to get their portfolios away. But more, most importantly, I think knock-on effect has been onto the companies themselves. So it's been well documented that companies are struggling to funding at the moment, just trying to get through the next three to six months. It seems to be a struggle for a lot of companies. Uh-huh. Um, so they can't raise the money they felt they were going to raise through an EIS raise or an SEIS raise, and that has obviously a traumatic effect for those companies. So, yeah, I think that's uh, that's the position we end 2020 in. Again, it's, it's good to note that both Avard and, and Keelan were saying that it's looking slightly more positive than heading into the back end of this year. And obviously next year we'll be slowly but surely moving into the tax year end for April of 2021. So hopefully that investment that wasn't done back in April 2020 will be done in 2021 and we'll kind of make up the gains or make up the ground at that point. But that, that, at the moment is kind of the $64 million question whether that will happen or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you think that this market being a retail market is a bit more sensitive to these things? Because I certainly I see in the institutional market, there seems to be noises about significant funds being raised, in some cases, record fundraisings, perhaps 
at the larger end, the sort of series A, B, C, rather than the sort of more CDN that we're at. Do you think that with EIS being retail, this has been a problem for us? Yeah, I think there's two things. I think one is that, yeah, you're absolutely right, because it's retail. The only other time I could think like this is kind of back at the 2008 liquidity crisis. And it probably the last sector back to the investment market was probably retail investors. They, they tend to be the most cautious anyway. feels like most of them are kind of run off to the hills and put their money under the carpet a little bit and just trying to ride this thing out until they've got a bit more certainty about what they're actually investing into. There, there's that side of it. And also, I think there's been a bit of a flight to safety as well. So I think that most money, particularly institutional money, but retail money as well, has gone to kind of later stage, Series A, scale-up type companies, rather than perhaps the, the market where EIS and SES tends to be, which tends to be kind of pre-revenue or very early stage. So it seems to be that there's been a shift away to the kind of, I guess, what are commonly termed the safer ends of the market in that sense. So, yeah, it's been a bit of a double whammy there. Yeah, I was going to say as well that in addition to the conversation we've had with clients around estate planning and and create and making sure the wills are in order and all that sort of stuff, the other thing we were quite busy with with clients who are actively earning money is around furlough and the impact on pensions. You know, we found a lot of clients were being furloughed, and so the the, the focus was entirely on helping them navigate through uncertain times. And I think as financial planners, that's far more important, I guess when things like that are thrown into our client's face, that we step up and, and help them na- navigate that. And now, obviously, when things are more clear now, we know where we are. Now we have time as in financial planning firms to start talking about this again. And I think it is important that when financial planners sit down with their clients, that they work out, one, a good opportunity for clients, clearly. Uh, there's lots of opportunity right now. But also that they assess their clients properly. And when a client is assessed properly from on, on risk, on, on experience, knowledge, etc., it doesn't matter whether it's an uncertain year. It still means that you, you need, to have, need to have that conversation with your client about EIS because in EIS, if that was good last year and if the client circumstances haven't changed that much this year, it's still a good thing to talk about. Yeah, it's. I, I, I guess to some extent we'll see how that goes into the year about you know so to what extent these sort of support things carry on. To me, the logical follow-on question is: given that we've got reduced fundraising in the air sector, what effect has this had on investing? And when will we start with Keelan on this? Mm-hmm. Well, certainly last uh, we had emergency exercises last March because. We, we had a pipeline that we had planned to invest in that uh, collapsed, to use an appropriate word. And so we had to spend a bit of time. We had, in our case, 14 investments lined up and we retreated back to 10 and three of those were new investments. And, and we spent a lot of time stress testing to make sure that we didn't just give people money and then they were within 12 months, you know, went to the wall, uh, which has been a successful exercise. But it definitely focused us in battening down the hatches, which is, I mean, I, I suppose that two other crises like this that come to mind are the, as Mark mentioned, the 2009 period, and then the 2000, well, the late 90s into 2002 period, so I'm old enough to have experience. They're kind of different in the, each of their ways. The 2002 experience, really the tech sector in the UK was pretty underdeveloped. I mean, it was more of a US phenomenon, but it was also European uh, as well. And there was a lot of, I guess even in retrospect, you call them ephemeral te- tech companies, 2009 was a real grinding crisis, and I would expect that this one, because 2002 sort of bounced back, and the 2000s were pretty good times in, in markets, but I would expect it to be this to be more of a bounce back. But I'm glad to say that, and I, I think a lot of people, something similar to us, they cut back on valuations, they cut back on 
well, not to cut back on quantum in our case and other EIS managers, but hopefully most uh, got through with their, their portfolios intact, at least the ones they've been recently funding. And certainly that's been the case with us. Yeah. How, how are other managers communicating what they're doing to you? Uh, mainly over Zoom, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> which is good. It's, uh, you know, saves on traveling. It's, it's actually been quite good. A lot of fund managers have st- stepped up with uh, the way they communicate, both via email, via newsletters. That's been really helpful. It's also been good to see that they specifically talk about how COVID or rather the lockdown has impacted on, on the companies, what they've been doing to help those, those companies through these difficult times and what they're doing with regards to uh, deal flow, how they're coping with uh, finding new businesses. So that has been, it's been a really good way. This year has been good from a communication point of view, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Mark, again, you've got a cross-market respect. I think one thing that we have seen is, I mean, Keelan kind of referred to this sort of reigning in of horns a little bit, where people either taking on less new investments, or in some cases they've kind of stopped taking on new investments and just stuck with follow-ons. How widely across the market have you seen these sort of things? Yeah, pretty widely. I'd say it's been a bit of a flight, flight to safety in that sense. So I think a lot of fund managers in our sector and more so in the VC sector and probably in the VCT sector actually probably shoring up existing portfolios rather than doing those new investments. So, you know, it's interesting to hear Keelan talk about he's going to do 14 investments and they cut back to 10. Um, I think for a lot of fund managers, those cutbacks have been to the earliest stage investments, perhaps the new investments they're going to make. And they, they've gone ahead and made investments in the later stage companies, the ones that they can see are doing well and prospering. And, and that has been another factor of uh, COVID as well, that we've kind of seen winners and losers. Uh-huh. We've seen some sectors really affected, you know, the obvious ones like hospitality and leisure and retail had a really, really tough time. Um, but others have just gone off and flown. Uh, a lot of portfolio companies we speak to in EIS funds have done really well, which shows one, the benefit of a fund manager and having them involved and helping your company get through that. But two, that, as I say, you can create winners and losers in this situation. So I think the money's followed one, the success stories, and two, the ones that perhaps at a later stage. But that has created a large way that's probably otherwise fantastic companies probably haven't got the funding that they need to to go on and develop and, and really bring us through in the next few years. Yeah, people keep talking about the K-shaped recovery where you've got this bifurcation. And I think my gut feeling, and I don't know if this is true in terms of quantum, but it's certainly true in terms of what people are speaking about in the sector, is that the digital businesses, which... Predominantly, a lot of the new investments I think are going into are generally speaking, there'll be exceptions, are are doing okay. And as you say, some of the more hospitality, which perhaps are more legacy investments now in EIS, they're doing not so well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Brian, I think I'd agree with that very much. So, I mean, maybe this week we saw the ultimate with um, what's happened with Philip Green. And it looks very much like yesterday's retail business. Uh, From what I understand, the people who are bidding for what's remaining of the empire are looking at the brands rather than the bricks and mortar. And I, I suppose looking at our portfolio, most of the companies have done well. Now, almost all of them had a pretty tough March and April, and maybe even May, because a lot of them, a lot of them are, you know, they're at that kind of C, late seed, Series A stage, and they're yeah. they're onboarding a number of enterprises. You know, that all froze because all most enterprises froze things. But to give an example of one. One of our insure tech companies, there was a large insurer, well, actually there's a few who froze their budgets, but then they found out, and what these, what they do is basically digitize claims in their case. The, the, the companies found out, no, actually we need this. It's like the future is now. We, that, that was something we were looking at in the next 
year, two, three years, but actually we need it now because some of these insurers, they went back and they, they, uh, they started having, you know, their claims are done by call centers and it's still, if you can believe it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's a global phenomenon. And they, um, they found that a lot of the staff didn't have proper broadband. They didn't have computers. It was a real mess. And so for a number of our companies, another one that's involved a wealth management tech company was St. James Place found that St. James Place needed a tool to onboard clients in a, in a, in a digital world where you can't meet them. So there's been a lot of opportunity there. And when you think of it, this has always been the case after these big crises. So new companies spring up. In the wake of 2009, you have WhatsApp spring up and uh-huh. Slack and Uber, Instagram. I'm sure it'll be the same this time. So there will be winners and losers. I feel sorry for a lot of the, the legacy companies that through no, no fault of their own, taking an absolute pacing. Yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely been a challenge for whether you call them legacy investments, as you say, there's a lot of good companies in there. I mean, what we've seen, I think, is the government just trying to tread a line in terms of its support between it doesn't want to sort of put everything in cotton wool and transport a year forwards, but at the same time, it's trying to support the good businesses. Maybe there's one or two bad ones that we could we, we could sort of let go, but they've been trying to walk that line, which is a very challenging line to to see and, and we've obviously seen a few schemes for smaller companies and i think particularly the future funds the one that we've looked at you know we've or maybe discussed in this industry a bit more than others how effective do you think these support schemes have been mark i think it depends on your uh, definition of effective i think in terms of you know, we've obviously had four of them in terms of you mentioned future fund already and bounce back loans and c bills and innovation grants that have been made available. So I think a lot of them have been successful in, in getting company to monies quickly. And certainly when we spoke to government and treasury, that, that was the main aim back in March and April and May. It seems a long time ago now. That, that was kind of the, the biggest thing they wanted to achieve, which is get money into companies quickly. And they couldn't really choose sectors or winners and losers. It just had to get into the system. So I guess we'll only find out in years to come whether, you know, bounce back lines recently have had a bit of a knocking in terms of, you know, broad element to it, how much money are we going to have wasted, on these companies that apply for it, funding versus done so fraudulently. You know, it's the future fund, how many of the companies, you know, will they go on to be the next Googles and Ubers that Keelan spoke about a minute ago in the next, in the next few years? Uh, we'll have to wait to see on that point. So I guess it's going to take some time to kind of go through the system and see whether that all plays out as we would hope it would do. But yeah, and the government's track record of trying to pick winners and losers isn't great. That's why my personal feeling that we should be asking fund managers like Keelan and, and others in Ireland do, do have a track record in putting money into companies and picking winners in that sense. You know, you'd be better off giving them the money, giving them the resources to try and find the, the companies that we really want to grow in the next few years. So, so that's my hope that well, that will be kind of the next stage of this uh, this crisis kind of coming out of the, the emergency funding that we've seen and perhaps more kind of a resetting the economy type environment. That, that That's kind of the approach the government will take. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it seems to me that there's one big gap within this in terms of we've seen a lot of debt and there's been some convertibles, but there's been nothing to create additional equity. And one of my small concerns, or maybe it's not a small concern, is that we're going to have a lot of companies who are saddled with debt. And I know some of it's going to be cancelable, whatever. Do you think this affects the prospects of things, would? Oh, good question. I think it's important. I think in this particular space, I think it's more important now than ever really to deal with, like Mark said, with with actual fund managers who know what they're doing. Because when they are dealing with companies that are looking at taking on some of that debt from the government or government bodies, I think there's a role for the fund managers then to have that conversation with those uh, portfolio businesses. 
to see whether that's in the best interest for those companies, which means that it becomes a more dangerous environment, I think, for people that self-select their own uh, EIS investments on the basis of maybe a conversation with a founding team or whether they go on, on, a, on, a, on a platform where they pick and choose their own, uh, own investments. So I think that's, that's not readily understood whether your own investment alongside those funds qualifies for, uh, for EIS or not. And Mark can maybe uh, provide some more details on that. But it, it goes back to it's the fund managers are now needing to, to advise their portfolio businesses on whether it's a good idea take, to take that debt. Mm-hmm. So Keelan, from your perspective, how do you see these schemes affecting the investability or desirability of companies? Well, I think you mentioned the future fund and I, you mentioned, well, it's been much discussed and it wasn't really, um, I think Mark would agree with this, not really aimed at the fund managers like us in the EIS and SEIS space. And, that, and that's fine. It, it has its use. It's, uh, I think the loading of debt on companies is, I mean, I generally speaking don't like anywhere companies taking debt unless they're at a certain stage and even then with some trepidation. But I think there are a lot of companies that were really well, and I think you maybe stuff like the restaurant, you know, a good local restaurant that's been going for years. That's just one example. And, you know, now they're loaded with debt. Is that desirable? I mean, uh, particularly if I was coming in as an equity investor, that's that's less than desirable. But I think some of the some of the um, measures, and I, I have a lot of, uh, I sympathize with the government because I think they're, what Mark mentioned about just getting money quickly, they were pretty successful in that, I think. There's obviously going to be some cases of abuse, et cetera, but that needed to be done. I think setting it on a longer term footing, maybe the government needs to reassess strategy and I'm sure Mark's been involved with that. But I think some of the measures have been useful to most people like bounce back loans and the furlough schemes. I mean, a lot of companies, of our companies utilize that for some of their staff, maybe on the business development side, for instance, because there was no business development. So those things all helped a little bit. So I think overall, the government initiatives have been pretty spot on in many ways. But they do, and maybe Mark has some thoughts on this, they do need to change a bit, I think, over the next year. Because a lot of times when you come out of recession, it's when a lot of the companies start going under, at least historically. Mark? Just, just, yeah, just on that point in terms of kind of government. So, yeah, we're just about to launch uh, a major research study which looks at what's happening in the funding, for early, particularly for early-stage companies. So we're going to release that on 7th of December. We've just done a big report on it. But, yeah, I guess the main findings of that have been that, yeah, there is a massive funding gap both at growth stage as well, but particularly at venture stage and particularly um, at early stage as well, particularly in the regions. It's fairly disproportionate how much money is invested in London and the southeast compared to the northwest and southwest and places such as those. So there's a lot of work to do there in terms of trying to redistribute a lot of that capital as well. And obviously that feeds into kind of the whole leveling up agenda. Mm-hmm. which you can you need to needs to take place so so yeah there's a number of four points we'll be taking forward we certainly think that EIS SES hasn't played a part so far in trying to help companies and, and having a scheme change or expanding in some way shape or form but we feel that there's propensity for do that going forward and say that the next stage seems to be not just propping up the economy but trying to grow it and Obviously, the biggest thing at the moment the government keeps telling us is jobs. I'm working in town at the moment, it's jobs, jobs, jobs. So any scheme that creates jobs is a job creator that we'll look at. And again, the research we just brought out tells us that yeah, for every SEIS, SEIS company mm-hmm. that takes funding for the schemes, they employ approximately four people. So if you multiply that across a million companies, that there's easily four million jobs created. So, so there's no reason why the schemes can't uh, play a part. 
uh, get funding to companies that haven't had anything through the four schemes that we've mentioned already because they, they are the companies that haven't had funding so far. It's the pre-revenue, very early stage companies that have kind of missed out. So they're the ones that are crying out the loudest at the moment and they're the ones we're going to need to mm-hmm. go on and hopefully be the scale-up companies of the future because if we don't plant those seeds now, we're not going to reap the benefits in a few years when we're obviously going to need it from an economic point of view. Yeah, so so in the spring, you, the EIS Association did have a consultation amongst the members and we had a stab at an initiative that didn't really get very far with the government for whatever reasons. One of my my thought was that actually it didn't it wasn't urgent enough. It didn't address the need here and now in the spring. Yep. But what what do you think we've learned from that in terms of making suggestions to HMRC or the government going forwards to help EIS t- take a bigger role in this? I think the biggest battle for us is two things. One is EU. So the scheme, you know, is old money in that sense. It's been around a long time, so it comes under the EU state aid. So obviously we have to have to go along with that, and and that's has a potential to go away on 31st of December. If we have an ideal Brexit, that, that might move away quite quickly, albeit there might be a kind of UK state aid that takes its place. So there's that. So obviously at the moment, trying to negotiate any changes to tax relief or expanding the scheme or way, shape or form any changes to the scheme needs to go for the EU. And you can imagine there's not a lot of appetite to, on either side to have those negotiations at the moment. And then the other one is obviously, uh, again, because we're on the statute books, because we are legislation, we have to go through Finance Act and Finance Bills. And obviously they take time then to take place in certain times of the year. So you kind of have to wait for those. We've already had a budget that's been delayed. So we were going to have one in November. Now it's, it's going to be in March. So it just keeps kind of pushing the can down the road for us a little bit. And all the time, as I say, a future fund was built in six weeks and neatly sidestepped the state aid, neatly sidestepped legislation, that they can get that up and running quite quickly. So the kind of key for us uh, talking to government now is one, quite frankly, keeping the scheme, preserving it, because we've seen you can build investment programs uh, very quickly. British Business Bank, the Pope's interview, obviously doing a lot of really good work, to be fair to them, um, and getting money out there. So there are new things that can come along. And as we know, governments like shiny new buttons, uh, and there's much better uh, PR stunt for them to say we built a new scheme rather than to say we're just tweaking an old one that's been there for 25 years. So it's that side of it, just trying to keep the scheme and preserve it, because it does do a job in a certain sector. We talked about early stage, innovative companies. And then it's just trying to look at ways to try and expand the scheme. So that, that's kind of where we're concentrating our thoughts at the moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one of the things the government has spoken about in largely vague sense, but they've been very specific, is building back better, which is the buzz phrase. And that leads us on to sort of the ESG area, which I think, whether it's strong enough to be a positive trend or not, but ESG certainly seems to be coming more into the mainstream in, in 2020. Do you think this is something that is sustainable or do you think this is something where we're going through i've been around long enough that i've seen sri come and go and the desire to do this do you think this is now it's finally arrived Haywood? it's definitely for uh, firms like ourselves Tilney smith and williamson esg is definitely uh, an area that we are exploring and we write about regularly now and talk to our clients about a lot so it's definitely on the agenda for for our own clients whether it's that easy to apply to the EIS space, that remains to be seen, given that it, it's very difficult to, to set these criteria and for investors to understand how those criteria apply to early stage investing. Because for example, one company may say, we are ESG because we're carbon negative and we only deal with carbon negative companies. It could well be that you say, well, carbon zero, carbon ne- neutral companies, so uh, unless we have more definitions and clarity around what it actually means to be uh, ESG uh, compliant in that sense within the ES space, it becomes difficult to 
to market properly. Another issue around EIS, and I'm sure you've covered this before uh, on your podcast, governance may be much easier for listed, listed vehicles like investment companies, but governance is a real problem for EIS funds, whether that's on just simple governance measures or shareholder rights or shareholder information. It's very difficult to apply rules for listed vehicles to unquoted vehicles and unquoted companies. Uh-huh. It's not a fad yet in the ass world. And I think there's maybe one or two funds that focus on ESG now. There's definitely far more interest, I think, in impact because that's a more measurable focus for, for, for fund managers. Uh-huh. And I think impact has been an easier conversation to have with clients for us because we can talk about the, the, the KPIs effectively, those, those indicators that you would apply to what that means to be, to be impactful. And that's an easy conversation and something that clients like because they like to make money, but they also like to do good. As in most clients won't say, actually, I like to do, I'd like to do bad stuff because you don't have that conversation. <laughs> Everybody says, of course, I'd like to do good stuff, but can you make me some money too? So I think that's uh, an easier conversation, like I said. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So, Keelan, in terms of either companies coming to you or investors speaking to you, how do you see whether it's the ESG compliance or the ESG impact having an effect on your business? Well, I, I, if I look at ESG, and I guess it depends on how you – we all have an idea of how it's defined, and I guess it's how far you go. I, I was speaking a few weeks ago with a friend of mine who's fairly senior in the city, and he's been investing in ESG for years, and he's done really well. And as, you know, as, as Avar just said, you know, people want to do well and also, you know, be proud of their investments, if you like. Um, but we did inevitably, as two old pros, I suppose, start talking about, and Brian, I think as an exponent, you relate to this, mm-hmm. where how much of the good news is factored in the price in the market. And when, when something's at a high, it's time to maybe look at other sectors is kind of a natural inclination I have as, as someone who is what looking at from an IRR perspective. But I, I think ESG investing is, is definitely here to stay as a cornerstone of people's strategies. And I think in wealth management in particular, you're going to see that that extends. But again, how far do you do you look at the definition? I mean, I can think of, I mean, one of, one of our companies has won two big government-led consortium contracts, and one of them is to do with food. And they provide, there's a consortium of various tech companies and also people like KPMG, but uh, this one starts to process food, but it hopefully ends up encompassing all of the agricultural sector. And it's doing stuff like reducing fraud, but also really motivated by health and safety. And I suppose, you know, in light of how COVID spread, um, this would be, you know, the, this technological solution stop that, hopefully, in the future. And certainly if there was something that broke out, it would be able to, in real time, identify that. If it was an apple, it would be able to find the precise tree, etc. And is that ESG? Probably not by how people would define it now, but it's certainly something that benefits society. So yeah, I think I think a lot of what we look at is probably not strictly ESG, but it is, I would argue, benefiting society. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think Edward's point about distinguishing between ESG compliance and impact, I, I think is a very useful framework for sort of thinking about, okay, you know, there's the basic hygiene factor of all companies are going to have to be ESG compliant in time. You know, and you can sort of debate about how maybe how that applies to small companies. Not every company is going to be an impact company. Mark, do you see any role for legislation or, 
you know, I mean, if, if, if the government's talking about they want to build back greener, someone's on the podcast recently suggested the like knowledge intensive fund, we could have an ESG fund or an impact extra sort of, sort of relief for EIS. Yeah, I've seen that suggestion put forward before. So along the lines of, you know, you've got an ISA, which is like the core product, if you like, but then you have a junior ISA and it'll help to buy ISA and kind of satellite products outside of it. So I guess you could have the same in EIS where you had the core EIS fund and then you have knowledge intensive and carbon neutral or ESG or whatever you want to call it. Uh, you can have those labels as well. I mean, it's not the road um, I think the government wants to go down. I think, again, actually tried this with what we've seen in the past of infrastructure and renewable energy, for example. They wanted to raise a lot of money for particular sectors and have gone away and done that and then kind of shut the door on those things. So I don't think they're inclined to do that again. I think it's an interesting market, the ESG one. I think we're certainly seeing more mission-led businesses. So companies that are wanting to make a social impact or have a particular mission and putting that before profit, obviously they hope to see profit as a result of that, but trying to change that dynamic, if you like. And certainly talking to investors or younger investors, more millennial investors, that's the kind of company they want to invest into going forward. So I think ESG will be a growing factor. I think we saw a green green investments a few years ago that we ended up with all different kind of types and sorts, and it's difficult to filter. So again, it'll be interesting to see how that kind of plays out and what's ESG, is there a proper ESG, is there not quite ESG? I think we just need to kind of define our terms a little bit better. Yeah, I, I certainly, and, and, and the, the, the episode of the podcast before this, we had a couple of folks discussing the different frameworks for ESG, and there's kind of almost too many at the moment, which I think it's a strength and a weakness in the sense that it's allowing us to explore all the options. But at the same time, most investors, I suspect, probably just want, where does this sit? You know, and they want a nice, easy, okay, you know, whether it's a score or whether it's sort of saying, there's these three categories and this sits in this category. I think that's probably where we have to get to. And certainly, you know, I, I guess we're, we're seeing this sort of people talking about whether it's impact or sustainability and, and sort of if the fund approach, how you guys sort of see these sort of requirements coming through. I think that the government already has a tool, which it really needs to do something with now, and it's the social investment tax relief, because that's already a tool for like a focus on proper impact without necessarily maybe a high profit objective, but definitely a return objective. It feels a bit like an EIS, but very, very focused on, on, on social impact. So there is a route already for that. But I think for EIS funds, it, it is important to, I mean, so some EIS managers can distinguish themselves within a space of people that focus either on the particular sectors or whether generalists or not. There's an opportunity for funds to carve themselves a niche in, in impact investing. And like you said, I think ESG is yeah, here to stay. But yeah, for now, we focus on what we've, what, what we've got and do that better and maybe start tinkering. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've got to admit, it's early conceptually it's something I'm a fan of, but in the practice is still under development, but hopefully we will make progress. So we touched there on knowledge intensive funds, which is kind of the new kid on the block in a sense. Mark, do you want to just quickly tell the listeners what a knowledge intensive fund is? I guess it does what it says on the tin in some ways that it has to be a company that has some kind of research or has some kind of differentiation in terms of the knowledge that they are bringing to to the product or service that they're bringing forward. So I won't go through the technical details because uh, I'm sure that'll be darn boring. In that sense, it's just it's particularly aimed at, I guess, I'll give you a good example, perhaps, you know, a med tech company. Think of a med tech company. You know, we're talking about vaccines at the moment, obviously massively in the news. It takes a long time for those companies to develop, to do research do trials, et cetera, et cetera, uh, before they get anywhere near a point of having it being into kind of revenue or profit. So those particular companies that really struggle for funding. So you can imagine going to an investor saying, look, 
we're thinking of doing this particular uh, product, this particular medicine. Uh, it's going to take six years to come to market. It's going to take you 10 years to get the profit. Do you want to invest in us? You know, that's a tough conversation to have for those companies. So, uh, so the idea of knowledge intensive fund is to try and stimulate some money to get into these companies, get funding to those companies a little bit quicker, a little bit more easily, uh, and kind of stimulate that market a little bit. So we've seen uh, it kind of announced by government, I think it's about over a year ago now, but it's coming to legislation now, and we are starting to see the first fund. Well, certainly, I know one fund has come to market with a knowledge and intensive approved fund. So I guess that's the other point to make. This will be an approved fund. It's not a discretionary managed portfolio, which most advice funds are these days. So you know when you get your tax year, you know when the funds are going to be invested, and all those good things. So, so yeah, it does change uh, the dynamics of the market. Personally, I still have some theories and worries about whether or how successful it will be. Government tell us that they're trying to stimulate around £6 million, or six, sorry, £6 billion of investment through a, a scheme such as this, but I don't see where that investment is coming from. This is supposed to be new money, not money that's already invested in EIS, the rest of EIS or VCT. So it's supposed to be a new money market, money tree, if you like, in that sense. They have concerns that it could be a bit of a white elephant and whether investors will have the risk appetite to take it up because it will be a, a perceivably riskier product than a normal EIS. So, yeah, a lot, 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 of, lot of questions to answer, I think. Yeah. So, so Keon, you're investing in probably most, if not all, your companies probably would qualify as knowledge intensive. Is this something you're looking at considering? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Uh, Mark and I were at the Treasury probably, Mark, was it two years ago, two and a half years ago, when we first started talking about this fund? Yeah, it must be, yeah. Right, yeah. And and there were some questions then, and there's some definitely some advantages. And I know there was a wealth manager there who was talking about some of the administrative burden that could be solved. And But I, I think I agree with Mark. We, let's see how that turns out. It, it has some questions. But it's interesting that you, you asked that, Brian, because we actually on – Monday morning, we received a, a request from a, a potential investor because we do quarterly closes. So we have a close coming up in December, probably mid-December. Will, will that close be, will all of the investments be knowledge intensive? And my response was, I'm pretty sure they're all knowledge intensive. But first of all, we're still deciding exactly which companies are in. We, we more or less know which probably about 10 companies. So we actually decided to use this as an opportunity to go and refresh this because as Mark said, there are some technicalities as to whether you qualify or not and most of our companies if not all are do meet those and some quite comfortably we have done a survey and we're actually it's coming in every day and everyone so far has come in and qualifies but we may have for technical reasons a, a company or two that fall outside of the definition and you just have to be careful in this guy's case he needs you know for tax planning for purposes so our fund is as Mark described it, a discretionary portfolio managed fund and it is a knowledge intensive fund, effectively. There may be one, one or two outliers, although I, I doubt that, but there may be. So it is a knowledge intensive fund without, without being an official knowledge intelligence KIC. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so, in the past, we did have an approved fund structure, which offers some advantage for investors by restricting the fund manager a little bit. It never took off. And the knowledge intensive fund, I think, has taken on some of these characteristics in terms of get, getting that pre-approval and earlier access to tax relief. Why do you think the old approved funds never took off? And do you think that has any perspective on what happens to knowledge intensive? I think in the past, there's definitely an issue with fund managers not being able to commit to or to have that straitjacket on that they had to make all the investments within 12 months. And so that, that, that was definitely an issue. And for the last few years, the only two funds that I was aware of that were doing the approved structure were managers that invested exclusively on AIM. 
where there was far more liquidity, far more far more opportunities basically to 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 invest. There was one that was I know of that was doing unquoted, but they never really attracted significant money with it. No, and it's so I, I find it odd because it's definitely easier on 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 investors from a paper management point of view, an admin point of view. So it is easier to plan with as well from a financial planning point of view. Um, so I, I've I've been surprised that it's not that it wasn't more popular. However, the big funds that were investing over a twelve to eighteen months period, uh, they wouldn't be able to use that sort of sort of structure. And some of the other EIS managers that have came onto the market in the last few years, I guess following, following the demise of the asset back world, a lot of those managers invest on a quarterly basis. So for them again, there was no need to to, to spread it out over a year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the big boys didn't do it, and the new boys um, didn't have to. Um, <laughs> and so for our clients, we've actively used an AIM-focused EIS fund that was, a, was an approved structure, especially when you get 30 uh, companies in one of those portfolios. You really don't want 30 EIS certificates mm-hmm. to deal with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that, uh, that's, that, that, that was the reason. So it's, uh, yeah. Um, as far as will it be popular, I think it will be popular for people that like investing more than a million pound a year, where they, and obviously Keelan has just highlighted the client that, uh, or an investor that was interested specifically in knowledge intensive companies. And I'd imagine that's because they were looking to invest more than a million pound in the current tax year. So that that is a, a, a reason why you would do it. I think for fund managers that are specialized in a, a sector that is by definition knowledge intensive, so Mark mentioned medical tech, could be biotech, could be other sort of deep tech with a very long route to market. Those fund managers that are already space in that business, they may as well turn their funds into knowledge intensive funds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, well, we'll see. I, I think like Mark, I, I've, I, I see the issues and I'm a, I'm a little bit skeptical as to whether this will attract any additional money above what we're already getting. No, so like I said, I think it's fund managers that are already in this space that may replace their existing offering with a knowledge intensive fund. Mm-hmm. But I would only do that if I'd have investors or if I if you if you're a fund manager and you get feedback from your investors and shareholders that that is something that they would do, mm-hmm. uh, then by all means. But it's just like anything else you do in product development. If there's no market for it, don't create a product. <laughs> Right. Yes. Because uh, I'm sure Keelan will have the same conversation with any company that he invests in. If there's no identified and mar- identified mm-hmm. market, why would he put his money there? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So th- the other new initiative this year has been the the fees initiative that the IS Association has put out in terms of improving disclosure and fees. What was the issue that this is trying to solve? I guess that's one to me. Is it um, t- transparency? I guess being transparent. So uh, we do a lot of advisor webinars and financial planner webinars, and, and we used to do events in the good old days. And one of the questions that came up fairly regularly was, uh, you know, we're trying to compare and contrast different fee charging structures from EIS fund managers. You know, we find it incredibly difficult. And this is from kind of experience, guys and girls who are looking at it, and even more so for, for people who are perhaps doing it at the end of the tax year. They just want to make quick decisions to get their clients' money away. So. So we're just trying to find a way of trying to make uh, it easier to compare apples with apples in our industry. Uh, we've got these different, various different charging structures out there. We'll probably talk about them in a minute, I'm sure. But it's just trying to find a way to kind of equalize them to make it a bit more easier to, to, for clients and more important advisors and financial planners 
to make decisions they need to make based on cost. So the idea was to get a set of principles. They're not mandatory, but principles uh, in conjunction with financial planners and advisors to say, look, this is how we would like to see uh, play back to us. And Avar was involved with this, so hopefully he'll pick up in a minute. But this is how we'd like to see fees pay back to us. This is what we'd like to see in a fee and charging structure. This is how we think it can make it easier. And then kind of pushing the owners on fund managers like Keelan here to say, actually, yeah, we meet that, that's fine. Or no, we don't. Perhaps we need to think about how we're looking at our fees and charges. So, yeah, it's just trying to kind of tidy up, make more transparent what, what we actually pay our money for when we're investing in an EIS fund. Mm-hmm. Ava, do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, no, I think it's important that transparency, both in the fees charged to clients, but also transparency in the fees charged to the portfolio companies. And I liken it a little bit to total cost of capital and something that we've seen with the VCT market, where total expense ratio, etc., and ongoing charges figures are being used now for more transparency. And even there, uh, some of the related party transactions uh, that you see mentioned in accounts aren't fully reflected always in in total expense ratios or uh, ongoing charges. So I think transparency is important. I don't think clients, to some extent, mind where the charges are, but they need to know where where they are and what they are. Because from a financial planning point of view, if, if we deal with a fund that charges clients, we will simply gross up the investment to make sure that the client can benefit from the full tax reliefs for the amount that they, we, we want them to, to benefit from it. Yes, it's easier to deal with funds where all the charges go to the portfolio businesses, but that's a false economy, ultimately, because it does a cost of capital, clearly. And that's, that, that just needs to be transparent so people can do their planning and people know what they're going to get for their investment. Mm-hmm. So, Keelan, you are obviously a fund manager. You, you, in some sense, the pressure has been put back onto you. I, I know you have a charging structure, which is, is it still... You charge all the fees pretty much to the investee company, is that right? Yeah, but I think more important than that is that we've always been totally transparent. And uh, one of the things I found, having spent the early parts of my career dealing with hedge funds, pension funds, people like that, I mean, most most industries were all about fees and performance. And so when we first came into the IS market, perhaps a bit naively, we'd look and we'd see a lot of fees being charged to investors because most companies were pretty uh, good at doing that because they had to, because it was not in an IM and you'd be in, pro- in trouble, but wouldn't really talk about what they charge investee companies. I guess our first thing is total transparency. And I think that's not just EIS, it's VCTs as well. I mean, for instance, I bid on a company, well, I didn't bid on a company, I walked away, but a company who got funded just before COVID at a valuation that we wouldn't have gone anywhere near, but it was an interesting company. But uh, they were showing me a VCT where they charge on both sides, and it looks really transparent. But then, then you see, and it was a three million pound investment, and then you, then they were showing me, oh, then the due diligence fees and the lawyers fees and this, and that adds another three percent. So what looked like six percent was really nine percent. And I think Avar would, would attest to the fact that that's not the most outrageous in in the market. But I think the whole thing about this is, uh, you know, there's so many reasons for wealth managers not to do. EIS and to insist on transparency, and I, I, I applaud Mark um, for coming up with this best practice guideline. I think a lot of people understand that there's going to be some failures in your portfolio. And pre-patient capital, that was a hurdle we all had to get over because there were a lot of people getting involved in the EIS that just saw it as a tax planning and not a, anything else. So that was one hurdle. But to you know, the number of times I've been on roadshows around the country with other EIS fund managers and 
you get somebody who liked your talk or whatever, some wealth managers, and they come up. And I've got to the point I recognize them where I say, I, I get it. You liked our talk or whatever, but you don't really like this product. And, you know, a lot of wealth managers, they do five or ten tickets a year, and they don't want to read 70 research reports. They don't want to get their client in something that blows up. They don't want something that's got a crazy fee structure. They just want something. They want you to make your life simple. And that transparency, fee transparency, I think is long overdue and, and a, a great initiative by, by Mark. And I know Avard and I were on this panel just before COVID broke. And I'm, I'm hoping, Mark, that this is going to be the first of many. We, we were talking about a few issues I, I think that the EIS has to, and, and VCT for that matter, has to tackle. And that's one of them. Valuation is another Marking down portfolios is part of the valuation discussion. Conflicts of interest. Some of the issues that have been big, the FCA that have highlighted like appointed reps in that regime and what that means going forth. There, there's a number of issues and fees, but fees is a, is a big one to get sorted. And I think if we engender trust in the investment community, it's much healthier for the industry. Yeah. Sounds like you're queuing up a whole pile of topics for future podcasts there, Keelan. <laughs> <laughs> Related, related topic. Yeah. So I, th- I, I, th- I think one of the issues for the sector, and maybe Keely again, you could comment on this, is that when you're doing relatively small scale investments, the fees can see seem quite high relative to, say, a mutual fund or an OIC or an investment trust. And I think one of the reactions that people have had to that you know, take transparency is they've actually put in a whole pile of fees, saying, "Okay, this is." showing that this is actually what it costs us. So this is why the fees might be reasonable. And that's got, while it perhaps aids transparency, it, it, it's also got a mixed blessing in terms of c- confusing people. How, how do you feel about, A, making money for you, yourself as a manager? Well, obviously you like that, but in terms of getting the fees right and trying to get that balance between transparency of what your underlying costs are, but at the same time not confusing the investor. Um, it is it is a balance. You're right. Maybe I mentioned before a total expense ratio, um, those kind of aggregate things. I think one of the, the next way forth on fees, because there's a lot of people, I, I would argue, that it sows confusion when you talk about, say, the investor side. Because I think there's reasons why you might charge both the investor and the investing company or one or the other, as long as it's transparent. But the it's almost as if people go out of their way to call, one calls something an exit fee, someone else calls it an audit fee, and it's is that designed to bring clarity? But you can add that up. For, well, one of the things we favor, and we're probably going to come out and announce this as, as our firm policy, is, um, and we mentioned this in the Lewis Silken seminar, as, as everyone probably remembers. I, I mentioned during that seminar why it was actually to Allenbridge. Why don't these companies just say what they charge the companies? So, And we're, we're going to come out and just say, listen, every 30 companies, I suppose, what do we charge each one each year? Maybe an aggregate sum, because you can't make a case of maybe some sensitivities, maybe if there's a legal case going on or something like that. But you should certainly be willing to tell, not maybe the whole world, but certainly panels, how much did you charge that company last year? Oh, you charged them X percent. Oh, and what did you do for that? Because if, if you charge none, I mean, it is an expensive asset class. If you do your job properly, you are involved with at least most of the companies on a fairly regular basis. There's no secret why it's a more expensive on a percentage case than, than say, a traditional unit trust. Are you be, being transparent and saying what you're doing for those fees? I think that's really the big issue. And are you being overall just transparent in what you actually charge? I hope that wasn't too long-winded. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's okay. We've looked back enough, and maybe it's time to look forward a little bit. 
Now, the year end, we have something that we've kind of avoided talking about on the podcast, but I think it's about time to talk about Brexit, which is not a little topic, but obviously, as we're recording, it looks pretty much like we're not going to have a deal by the year end unless the government changes its mind on a few things. And clearly, that's a risk for some elements of the economy. How much of a risk do you think that is for the EIS sector? I think... um... From an EIS point of view, the Brexit is, is probably a good thing. And so if we leave out a deal, like I say, that removes EU state aid for, for us pretty quickly. So uh, from that point of view, we're kind of EIS and SEIS back in our own uh, backyard and we can change it and move it and uh, expand it or decrease it however we want to. So from that point of view, it helps. Over and above that, in terms of an investment point of view uh, and more generally kind of VC sector, fairly bullish actually. I think there's a lot of companies who are struggling with funding at the moment, but there are some great companies out there, and Kilian will tell you, I'm sure, in his portfolio how many great companies he's got, as, as does every fund manager, I'm sure. But I think the, the, the outlook is pretty good for some of those companies. Uh, and we're starting to see, I think what has happened with COVID is accelerated a lot of existing trends. We talked about it already. But we'll see some of those companies play out perhaps in a shorter time span than we would normally. But I think for future investment companies, it's all looking fairly positive. For an early stage pre-revenue company, Brexit's a bit of a sideshow. You're probably not exporting, probably an online trader anyway. So uh, you can still trade online globally regardless of Brexit. So I think for a lot of them, it's a red herring, quite frankly, particularly the early stage companies. Mm-hmm. Anyone else got any thoughts? Yeah, I, I think it's not going to be open to debate when it does the overall economy. But I don't think Brexit per se is going to really, I can only speak from, from what we do, but in the tech sector, I don't think it's going to harm it, unless, of course, that they were going to be restrictive about allowing high qualified people in from other countries. But I don't think that's the intention. As Mark said, I mean, it's a bit like, looks like it's happening with capital gains, what the Chancellor is hinting at, that they may double. That's maybe not so good for the economy, but it's pretty good if you're an EIS fund manager in that it makes the product more appealing. And when Mark is saying that about Brexit might allow some state aid rules, I mean, say, for instance, maybe, and Mark, I don't know if you have any opinions on this, maybe, for instance, we could get a higher limit on SEIS rather than just being restricted to 150,000, which might be interesting for the for the early stage of the market. So, yeah, but overall, I don't think it's going to have a huge impact with this in the yeah, just on the SEI's point, it is one of the things, uh, it's one of our policy recommendations that we'll be launching on Monday to try and raise a limit from 150 to 250. So, yeah, it's very much on the agenda. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that has been touched for a decade, so it's probably overdue. Ava, do you got any thoughts on, uh, yeah. uh, as someone who's not British? <laughs> no, I think it's definitely, if there's no deal or a very restricted deal, there will be issues for companies that rely on imports mm-hmm. for manufacturing or reusing those materials for to, to either to create something or to amend something or just something for the UK market. So that could well be a need for further investment of British people into British companies to bolster up that, to make to make sure that products can be can be created here and sold locally. Outside of Brexit, I think there's a couple of other issues globally, obviously. New president in the States, uh, more than likely in the next few weeks. There's issues around uh, supplies from uh, Chinese companies. There's a cross-Senate support for restrictions on companies that rely on slave labor and forced labor in China. And so there could well be other issues that affect companies in the UK as far as from imports are concerned. And so I think Brexit is a good opportunity to focus a little bit more on what Britain can create for itself and then maybe export uh, to other countries. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, certainly, uh, from where I'm sitting, supply chain risks seem to be the, the biggest one. And, and for digital companies, that's largely, uh, as everyone's sort of said, a sideshow. Well, you say that when you start doing with VAT on digital goods and services mm-hmm. when it comes into selling into Europe, that could well be a real, real, a real pain. So there's a lot of things that haven't been ironed out by uh, the current government in the UK. So, but definitely opportunity. And I think that's what the one thing we've seen this year, entrepreneurs thrive in chaos and they thrive on opportunities, basically, and creating opportunities. And so Brexit will just create another wave of companies and entrepreneurs that will find op- that find solutions to problems created by governments. Kieran mentioned obviously the CGT issue. Uh, Mark mentioned the budget in March. Uh, I think for financial planners, it's really important that you have a conversation with clients right now about the potential impact of a budget in March that will increase taxes or will reduce benefits, such as pension benefits or removal of the 25% tax-free lump sum when you take come to take the pension. Potential, there's a conversation about wealth tax even in the UK at the moment. So all these things... You need to have the conversation with your clients and start planning for eventualities and start thinking about making use of EIS and SEIS in normal financial planning for the right clients. Yeah, the work I've done suggests that there is a, a benefit for a huge variety of people and not just the sort of normal suspects that people might think about in terms of putting a little bit of venture capital, EIS, SEIS with VCTs into a client portfolio and you can have benefits on the risk return characteristics across the board. So I've, I've kept you all for an hour so far. I'd like to put you all on spot a little bit and ask, looking forward to 2021, can you maybe suggest something that you're looking forward to and thinking it's going to turn out well in 2021? And what do you think a risk that we should be looking out for is? So I'll start with Mark. Oh, thanks a lot. It gives me less time to think. Um, <laughs> So something to look forward to and a risk, did you say? Yes. Something to look forward to. Yeah, I'd say I'm fairly bullish in terms of EIS. I think I'd like to think there'll be some changes. We've got a budget in March. I'm hopeful that that will create something and, and provide something to particularly the companies because they're the ones obviously that we need to get funding to at the moment. Ava talk about entrepreneurs and innovators, knowing the people that use these schemes and they do see the opportunities. They will be the ones that give us economic growth over the next few years. So we've got to look after them. So I'm hopeful there'll be some changes for those guys and girls. Hopefully that involve EIS, but we'll wait and see in the budget. So I'm hopeful on that front. Risk-wise, I don't see too many headwinds. Uh, we talked about Brexit. I don't think that'll be a particular risk. I guess the biggest risk is, you know, how we come out of this pandemic, you know, when, when vaccines will come along, how they'll be rolled out, and they're going to be rolled out effectively, and just how quickly we can get back to, you know, talking about new normal. How quickly can get back to old normal? You know, how quickly we can start getting out, meeting people and doing all the things we used to like and like and do. I think when we get that point, that'll really help the investment side. We talked at the very start of this podcast that investors were kind of taking risk off the table and, and not quite sure whether to invest at this time. I think once all that happens, that might create a bit of a feel-good factor and really give a, give it a shot on the arm that it probably needs to do that. So, so the risk comes on whether that happens or whether that takes longer to happen than we perhaps think it will do. So. How about you, Keelan? I'd share that with Mark. I'm very bullish for, for next year. I think that markets tend to look six, nine months ahead and the vaccine or vaccines, should I say, I just think is, is great news and we can see the, the light at the end of the tunnel. And there are so many people that we know personally who actually last last March, we had for the first time people in the EIS market had it before people say well, they're going to give you money and it doesn't happen or it happens a year later. But we actually had people who actually came 
and took money back, which was the first time we ever had that. So, but a lot of people who were going, who had, you know, big CGT issues or financial planning issues and were just put them off. Some people who sold businesses and understand entrepreneurial risk and just said, I don't need to invest now. So we're pretty bullish that that's going to come back and that those people still have those needs. I think also bullish on the M&A front because one thing that this year really did is stop a lot of that kind of talk. And uh, we had a number of companies that we were uh, having conversations with and then that just died. So hopefully that comes back next year. And uh, I think if there's one risk that really worries me is that we get a third wave and a fourth wave and the vaccines were over-promised and under-delivered and we... We find ourselves next October having similar conversations about lockdown. I don't think that's likely, but that's certainly the risk, I would think. Well, let's hope that one doesn't materialize. Avid. Yeah, so the one thing I'm worried about is that the focus with on, on this built back better, basically this idea that don't leave anyone behind, because there are swathes of the UK economy where characteristically they're, they're referred to as low-skilled labor which does a great disservice clearly to the people that specialize in, the, in what they do for a living. But it's important that we don't forget about all the people that are losing their jobs during these, these, these lockdowns in industries that will suffer coming back. And so I think that's what I worry about. And so I'm hopeful at the same time that the government will do something about that and may even provide scope within the EIS to help some of those older industries that aren't ready for either digital age or simply they do things that you can't put in digital format, such as hospitality, where we employ a lot of people in the UK. So I'm hoping that there's, at the same time as worried about that particular thing, I'm hoping that there's a solution from the government also to take everybody on that journey of build back better and that no no one gets left behind. Mm -hmm. That's an admirable thought. So, thank you very much, everybody, for giving me your time today. We really much appreciate you giving your thoughts. If people want any more information on, on what you guys are doing, where can they go? Start with Mark again. Uh, easy for us, though. So www.isa.org.uk. Yeah, head over to the site and um, have a look. Keelan? If they go to our website on Simman Capital, www.simmancapital.com, and they can find contact details there. Excellent. And Avod? Well, so probably are uh, changing all our websites at the moment. So <laughs> I think the uh, the one to look for now is www.tsandw, and that's T-S and then the word and, w.com. That's Tilney Smith and Williamson. Um, and otherwise, you may find me appearing at another podcast or a, or a webinar organized by Mark. <laughs> very soon. We'll put all those in the show notes as usual. So thank you very much, for your time today, gentlemen. Thank you very much to all the listeners as well for listening. I hope you had a nice and safe Christmas, and I wish you all the best for a nice, safe, and prosperous 2021. Thank you. Thank you very much. So we hope you enjoyed that. If you want to find out more, the show notes will be available at harmonandco.com forward slash podcast. If you like what you heard, you can give us a review with lots of stars on iTunes. You can subscribe to this through iTunes, Spotify, and all good podcast players. If you want to give us feedback or find out more about what we're doing, then you can send us an email at inquiries at Thanks very much for listening and hope to hear from you soon.